Welcome to Farscape Friday, episode 34. I'm Kay, here with my co-host Taz. Hello. Today we'll be discussing the 12th episode of season 2, Look at the Princess Part 2. Let's get started. Welcome back. Here's a quick summary of Look at the Princess Part 2. Part 2 picks up right where Episode 1 left off, with John getting beaten up and about to be killed. He's saved by Genavian, a PK special op who's posing as Claver's fiancé in order to make sure the Scarens don't get a foothold in the Empire. When he tells everybody about Claver's murder attempt, no one believes him until a floating murder gas ball comes and tries to kill him and Contralla. As John continues to battle more Claver and Scarin assassination attempts, Zan confronts a deity that requires Moya to decommission herself. Okay, I just love your description of the murder, floating murder gas ball. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I'm like, this is a really weird murder attempt. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Poor John. Oh my God. So look at the princess part two really could be retitled John's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. I mean, it's a couple days, but it's a couple days that really suck for him because you have that cliffhanger where he gets beaten up and almost killed and last minute rescued by Genavian. And then you have the murder ball attempt. Well, actually, before the murder ball attempt, you have no one believing him that someone tried to kill him because there's no evidence left. And so then you have him getting slapped in the face over and over by Katrala, who's like, my brother would never try to kill me. And then the murder ball attempt. And then he's secreted away on this by Rigel and the Empress. And then Scorpius gets into the mix. And it's just, oh my gosh. I know. Poor, poor John. <laughs> poor John. Yeah, his really no good, very bad, terrible day. Initially, when I was rewatching this, because I was watching two and three together, two felt a lot like filler. Do you know what I mean? Because nothing, mm-hmm. there isn't a lot of plot that moves forward. It's mostly just a series of assassination attempts on Crichton that yeah. end with kind of one of the better scenes that we've seen so far this season. But at the same time, it does just feel like this is a lot of, of kind of tread, treading water as we get ready for part three. Yeah, and I, f- I feel like there are two things that come out of this episode that is the reason we need it. And one is Zan's plot line with Moya, because that finally gets fleshed out where it didn't have space to be fleshed out in the first episode, honestly. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is we really start to dig into Scorpius and his chasing John and his relationship with John and how that is evolving, shall we say. Mm-hmm. And that's really the other part that really comes to the forefront in this episode that I think is important. But yeah, the rest of it just feels like making time to give those two beats a space to to play out. Yeah. Even as this episode really does feel a little bit like a placeholder in some places, it really does set in motion the pressure for part three. Because Mm -hmm. I think that without all these assassination attempts, we would still almost see John's decision to become a statue as kind of as him afraid of Scorpius rather than this, you know, whole other thing of them trying to keep the empire from going into Scarin hands and that being a very real possibility. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It keeps the pressure on and uh, gives his decision more depth because it's for more than one reason now. 
Yeah, exactly. So John's rescued by Janavian in the first two minutes of the episode, and she assumes that he is also PK Special Ops. And he plays along because John is really quick on the uptake. And mm-hmm. it turns out that Janavian is there as Claivor's fiance to make sure that the Scarens don't get hold of the Empire. And so her job is to kind of is to make sure that all of Claivor's little plans never come to fruition. Right. And if he does ascend the throne, then she is going to kill him. So she saves him and then disintegrates the bodies using the same weapon that they were going to use to disintegrate him. And here's there are definitely a few things in part two and three that don't really pass the E.T. question, like the E.T., Mm -hmm. which is uh, okay. the E.T. problem is if E.T. could fly. Why did the whole movie happen? Okay. And so it's yeah. kind of like one of those things where it's like when there's a reveal, you you have like a moment of what? Well, why didn't? And so my main thing is, okay, so why didn't she just leave the bodies? Because that would be pretty good evidence that Claivor was attempting to assassinate John, which apparently is a he- something that the royals don't do. And probably his mother would have immediately imprisoned and or killed him for it. Yeah, it's a good question. I have no good answer for that. Yeah. Because whenever these kinds of questions come up and these kind of plot holes come up, I just, you just kind of have to sit back and attribute it to the characters not thinking through all the possibilities or something. But maybe it's more subtle than that. Maybe it's her simply covering her own tracks because she didn't want to have any evidence of her interference with what was going on. Mm. I didn't want to compromise her position in any way, shape, or form because she so far has convinced the Scarin diplomat that she is a complete non-threat and all she's thinking about is marrying Claivor for his power and that she is an empty-headed bimbo. Yeah, okay. Actually, I'll buy that. That actually makes a lot of sense. So anyway, yeah, because no one's <laughs> going to believe that John could have taken out like all those guys on his own. <laughs> yeah. Love you, John. Poor John. No one ever believes that he can do anything. <laughs> right? He's human. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so no one believes John, including the Empress, who now wants genetic tests to prove that he's not unstable, and mm-hmm. Katrala, who believes that if he's a liar, she can't marry him. So, which okay, can I just stop right there because, yeah. yeah so I kind of want to talk about that conversation between John and Katrala. I'm going to play it, and then we can kind of go into it. You humiliated me. That's enough. Okay. You have made your point. I don't think I have. Clavel went to my mother and detailed your obnoxious behavior. My obnoxious behavior? Yes. My brother poisoned my DNA. I know I am not a fool, but he would never kill anyone. Well, Ascaran might. They are playmates, you know that. Look, if you don't want to marry me, just say so. I already said so. Lady, we have been over this ground with a backhoe. It works for both of us. It saves my life. It saves your ass. Okay. I did deserve that. My mother now considers you unstable. Hmm. She wants more medical tests. Katrala, listen to me. Your brother sent men to kill me. Now, John cannot marry Katrala if John is not alive. Claivor is weak. I cannot believe that he would participate in such a heinous act. That means you're lying. And if so, 
I can't marry you. Her whole thing about, oh, all of this contrived, you're lying, Claymore would never actually try and kill me, even though clearly he is out to get her and she knows it. Like, I can't marry you thing. It's like, he's the one doing you a favor. And John, I know, makes that argument with her right there. And it's just like, why? I don't. I don't understand her position with this. It's just frustration and anger coming out that she has a target for, but if, with that John is conveniently there for so she can hit him across the face. But I mean, he's right. It's like he already told her he didn't want to marry her, and now she's making it into this big deal. Yeah, I hear what you're saying because I feel like the whole thing of no one believing that Claivor would participate in a murder attempt is super contrived because we forgot to mention that. The reason everybody is so upset is that after the murder attempt, John immediately goes to goes to Claivor and beats him up, and yeah, essentially, which is like, actually very satisfying. Yeah, right, because he's like, and he's like, "Don't murder attempt me," <laughs> you know, <laughs> is essentially the punchline of that entire scene. So I think there's a couple things going on there. Number one, I think that the statement, "I understand my brother poisoned my DNA, but he's weak." I can't imagine he'd participate in an assassination attempt does not make any sense to me at all because I'm like, no, it actually makes more sense that he would participate in an assassination attempt. Especially since he's all buddy-buddy with the Scarens, who are known to be a part of a powerful empire who are not weak in many senses of the word because they're physically strong, but they're also very strong-willed. And... It's like Claivor being the one behind it. Yeah, well, why can't you just see right through it to being the Scarens right behind it? I mean, that seems so obvious from the outside. And I think that's how the Empress sees it. Yeah, I don't know. Certain. Yeah, I think that there's, I, I don't know. I imagine it's a lot of things. I think it's her frustration because she's found this perfect fall guy in John. Like, mm-hmm. great. Now I can be empress. I can marry a weak guy because I don't think she really sees because John clearly is not powerful in the sense that he is not royalty. He does not have any of the backstory that I'm sure any of her other suitors would have had. She, yeah. you know, he's essentially a blank slate that would happily let her rule, mm-hmm. you know? And yeah. so I think she's kind of she kind of was like, OK, you know, I'm making the best of a bad situation by marrying this dude. Only now this guy comes and he's beating up her brother and he's making trouble. And now her mother is questioning it. Although if her mom is serious about wanting peace, I don't know why her mom literally hasn't put Claivor in a prison cell already. You know, right. Exactly. Just keep him away from the scarens and interfering with everything. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that was just my my frustration with that scene. Also, for someone who supposedly abhors physical violence, what's with slapping Crichton across the face? I mean, seriously, we need to get Sack in here on that. And that's supposed to be played for a punchline because the um, Tino says the royal family abhors violence. And then, (laughs) you know, Katrala comes in and slaps John across the face. So it's, it's supposed to be like a comedy moment. But I have the same problem when I'm watching Korean dramas where I'm like, people need to stop slapping other people. A yeah. lot because I have it's not appropriate. It's not appropriate. And to be honest, like if anybody ever like I've never been slapped in the face by anybody and I have never slapped anybody in the face. And I kind of feel like that is the first sign of abuse. Number one. Mm-hmm. And it's not an appropriate response to anger ever. Period. No. End of story. No. 
And that said, we all were, <laughs> we just said that was actually very satisfying when John slaps Claymore in the face. But on the other hand, Claymore did just try to kill him. Yeah, like Claymore just tried to kill him. Charles <laughs> is just mad. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, yeah, and it's not a very auspicious beginning to a marriage. Yeah, I mean, and that's not to say like I still like her. She does some things, other things in this yeah. episode that I like a lot. Yeah. I think this was just kind of sloppy writing because they needed. They needed Katrala and John to be in a room alone together so that right. they could then have this other, which is like the other weird part about not leaving the bodies around. I'm like, because literally the next move that this, this episode makes is, oh, now there's this flirt, like floating murder death ball thing, you know? And I'm like, yeah, well, that was a wasted five minutes of time. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, as we said earlier, I mean, it keeps the pressure on. And, and in this case, it also starts to build the trust with Rona, who is the green-scaled alien who rescues them from the murder ball, mm-hmm. who's a servant or another emissary. I think a servant. I'm, yeah. It's really a, she seems to be a higher-level servant, though. She also seems to be one of the very few number of aliens that we actually see on the royal planet. Yeah. It's otherwise very sebation-heavy. Yeah, I think, and I think that that's by design because it kind of sounds like the Empress really does not like other mm-hmm. species at all, off-worlders right. at all. And so, what was her name again? Zana? Rona. 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 Rona rescues Katrala and John by leading them out a secret back door that I don't know. Servants' entrance. Servants' that's entrance. What I, that's what I thought. You know, palaces have secret hallways all over the place sometimes. Okay. At least the fun ones. <laughs> right? <laughs> so she leads them out into the hallway. They survive. And now everybody believes that somebody is trying to kill John. And right. we get more of the Empress and Rigel bantering. Oh, my God. I love them. Oh, together. so good. They are the best. We f- I feel like we finally get to see Rigel in his element. Yes, that's yes, that's it exactly. Because I think on Moya, Rigel is just this selfish little creature that is only out for himself and tries to politic with no one because no one else is super interested in his mind <laughs> games. And then when you see him with the Empress, you really see him as someone who used to be Dominar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why it's unknown to you? Because it's probably Scarron, the same Scarron who's in conspiracy with your son. Silence. You may have once ruled 600 billion, but you will not besmirch my son's name. Aren't we past that, Novia? You posture and deny any longer, and we both lose what we want. If Crichton leaves, he will flee. Not if you control the situation. Stash him somewhere. Moya's gone. He's got nowhere to go. At least give yourself time to identify the conspirators other than your son. (laughs) Are you familiar with the Jack Inch race? The little green creature who saved Crichton and your daughter. Precisely. Her eldest counselor sent a ship filled with wedding gifts. It orbits unattended, unnoticed. <laughs> Excellent thinking. Do you employ a detail of guards above treason? I shall send my very own paladins. I propose we tell no one. Not my shipmates or your daughter. Let them all think that Crichton's disappeared. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Throw them off the scent. Mm. Encourage those who are intent on assassination to grow careless. Precisely. You are most wise, Empress. And you are most manipulative, Domina. (laughs) Yeah, so Rigel being the master politician there. I mean, it's not like a super convincing example, I guess, 
because it does feel kind of run-of-the-mill, but I feel like it's also kind of like TV writers trying to write politics that sometimes can be very difficult. Yeah. I know when I write fic, sometimes that's the hardest thing to do is to get that subtext going on. But what I do like about that is, you know, he's like, aren't we beyond pretending that your son is a good boy? Yeah. And, you know, just trying to cut through some of that BS and then trying to make it sound like her idea when he talks her into, you know, sending John off by himself. Mm Mm-hmm. And of course she says, ah, aren't you the master manipulator? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I guess I think you're right. I mean, it's not like, it's not like the most manipulative of things, but at the same time, I think what I really like about it is just the level of respect that they give each other. Yeah. Because we've seen the Empress is incredibly powerful and in, in control. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And very smart. I think that it's one of those things where it's like, if A, then B kind of things. Because then we're like, well, if this incredibly smart, powerful woman respects Rigel, then he must be worthy of respect. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So I really like that little scene between them. And, you know, as to not telling the Moya crew. So when I when I watched this again, it was like, so really, you're not going to tell your crewmates that you're just going to stash John away. Mm-hmm. And on the first pass, it feels like Rigel being Rigel again and playing the situation to his maximum benefit with the Empress because it's Curry's her favor. It's a good thing for her to not tell the crew. Mm-hmm. But I was thinking about it after, you know, watch because I also watched two and three together. It actually does make good logical sense because it protects the crew from mm-hmm. interrogation. Like they can't tell anyone where he is because they don't know. Mm-hmm. So as we see when the Scarin comes after them later, trying to trying to find John and find out more information. Yeah. You know, you you can't divulge what you don't know. And so that seems very shrewd by Rigel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I agree that it makes sense kind of in in respect to the rest of the episode, you know, mm-hmm. because, yeah, the crew is pretty discreet, but not that discreet you know they might have been talking about oh Crichton up on the ship about you know like in the atmosphere and then somebody might have overheard or yeah it kind of makes sense I think that I'm willing to forgive it because it leads to one of the more interesting moments of this episode Mm -hmm. so John gets up on the the ship but we as viewers know that the servant has been turned by Scorpius and this was another moment that you just kind of have to accept and move on because I cannot (laughs) I cannot (laughs) believe that given that the servant has the empress's complete trust that the empress considers her above reproach that she would be so easily swayed by money because I just can't believe it's the first time that somebody has offered her a ton of money to sell out the Empress. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, plot point. So they need someone to, to betray John. So they're on this cargo ship where he is supposedly going to be safe for the next two days. And guess who shows up? Well, Lieutenant Braca, he shows up Scorpius's <laughs> right hand man and takes John prisoner and it's a full betrayal and everything. And John, who'd been having this little bit of a conversation with Rona beforehand, is like, you don't get a toaster now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because he'd been promising her all the wedding gifts. He was like, you should have yeah. all of them, all of our wedding gifts. I'm not going to need them because I'm going to be a statue. So then we get Scorpius into the mix. So we've had the Scarens trying to kill John, and now we have Scorpius trying to capture him and having succeeded in this case at the moment. And he comes up on the hollow screen and this is kind of the turning point of the episode. This is where the, this is the apex of the downward slide. 
apex, the nadir of the downward slide, and now it's going to start going back up. And we find out a little bit more about how Scorpius sees John, and then John kind of realizes what that means for his safety. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to play this clip because this is the return of John's defense mechanism and what becomes one of his signature defense mechanisms from here on out. Why don't you leave me alone, Scorpy? Because the wormhole technology locked in your brain makes you, to my knowledge, unique in the galaxy. Unique. And unique is always valuable. Yes. Stop, or I will shoot you. Really? You promise? Sit down. I said sit down. Oh, you're going to shoot me? If I have to. Do me the favor. I don't think so, you know? I don't think Scorpy is going to give you your badge of commendation if you shoot unique. Sit down, or I'll shoot your limbs off one at a time. Human sebation, human sebation, we're different. One wound, I bleed out. Oh, Papa Zabraka, what the hell happened? Hmm? Fine, let's do it then. Let's do this thing. Come on, shoot me. Right here, right here. Go. Oh, oh, no, 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 not the brain. He wants the brain. The heart. Here. You shoot me in the heart. Uh, kind of your left, right. Oh, yeah, my right, your left. My left, your right. Here. John Wayne Bobbitt, the Yellow Boys Choir. Huh? You're insane! My sex life! Kill my sex life! Now! Quick! Shoot! Just shoot! So here we have Scorpius finally articulating what John actually is to him, and that is unique. He is this resource that he must have. And John picks up on the fact that because he must have be had by Scorpius, Scorpius must have him, that he is worthless dead. And he doesn't want to die, but he uses that fact against Braca because Braca's only way of controlling him while he's on that little cargo ship is with a gun. So he goes manic. This is one of John's defense mechanisms that we've seen a little bit already. We saw it come out, especially in Crackers Don't Matter when they were under the influence of Charltics. But here it becomes, it's just from John. It is this wildly manic behavior that is meant to confuse and meant to be chaotic and... It throws Braca off successfully, and he's able to get some breathing room by saying, hey, shoot me here. No, shoot me here. And that last bit about, you know, kill my sex life, that's him pointing the gun at his right hand. Because that currently is all that John has for his sex life. <laughs> so he gets a little breathing space for Braca because he's convinced Braca Braca can't shoot him. He's a little bit out of control, so he starts pushing buttons. And that's how he ends up saving himself is by triggering the weapons on the ship so that it triggers the defense net of the planetary defense system and that they start shooting the ship. Mm-hmm. And Rona dies in the fight and Braca gets off the, the exploding ship by jumping out with his spacesuit on because he has a PK spacesuit. And this is the one that bothers me, but oh well, it's Farscape. They're more about magic than they're about science anyway. <laughs> so the transport pod that they use to get from the planet to the cargo ship is not attached anymore but it's floating nearby and john jumps out without a spacesuit into vacuum and is able to make it across with just a weapon to use as propulsion and then get into the transport pod and survive and i'm sorry but people don't survive decompression for that long (laughs) they just don't (laughs) no yeah 
I mean, his eyeballs would have exploded, number one, even if he'd managed to yeah. somehow survive vacuum. And then additionally, I'm like, I think the Martian pretty effectively explained why using propulsion as chaotic as a weapon or a hole in your spacesuit is not yeah, it- effective. <laughs> that the Iron Man version of propulsion so well. does not work. We love you, Tony no. Stark, but no. Yeah, so it's it's a bit of a stretch, yeah. believability-wise, but in the end, John survives, and I guess that's all that matters. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I, it is like one of those things where like the writers had kind of yeah. written themselves into a corner because they needed to have John at a point where Scorpius wasn't just frightening in the sense that he had PTSD mm-hmm. flashbacks every time he saw Scorpius, but also in the sense that Scorpius was a genuine threat to John's physical safety, even in this safety of the royal planet. Right, right. And even with the fact that Scorpius wants him alive and wants him in good health so that he can, you know, dissect his brain. Mm-hmm. I think it sets up the interesting conundrum of Scorpius and John, which is that Scorpius definitely has missiles that could take Moya out easily. Yeah. But this kind of explains why Scorpius would never use them. Yeah. Yeah. And this, how it, this, uh, this continues to evolve their cat and mouse game that they have... They began to play, but now this is because this is the first appearance of Scorpius in the flesh since uh, Mind the Baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we we've, we've seen John hallucinating him, but this is where he returns and to be to be the threat and the driver of of plot, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, driver of continuing forward momentum mm-hmm. i think it also it's just a good moment for john because like you said this is kind of him developing his defense mechanism and in a lot of ways whereas crackers don't matter it definitely felt like there was that edge of maybe he is crazy and the same with taking the stone mm-hmm. you know there's this kind of the slight edge of maybe this isn't a play acting i think that here it's definitely very clear that he's doing this as a defense mechanism and he's doing this kind of chaotic chaotic god persona as a way of getting out of a situation that he wouldn't be able to get out of from his logical science persona it's like the the progression of his talking his way out of it because that's basically kind of what he does it's a lot Mm -hmm. more physical it's it's a lot less coherent but that's kind of the point of it Mm mm-hmm and it is, I mean, I, I find Crazy John very entertaining to watch. Oh, yeah, totally. You know, because totally. it always, it's always like you have to be listening really carefully because the dialogue is always super fast and super packed with references. Yeah. Yeah. So he makes it to the module or he makes it to the transport pod. Transport pod gets back to the planet. He's like, oh, no, somebody else tried to kill me. And everybody's really unimpressed. <laughs> <laughs> except for Aaron Aaron's actually very impressed with him she's super happy that he survived and so Aaron has kind of been we'll kind of come back because her plot intersects with Gianna's but this is the first time Aaron and John have spoken all episode and I want to play it because it's it's very much a continuation of where they left off in part one I'm very proud of you really Yes. Why? Being Crichton. Crichton, I always knew. Yeah? Hmm. Getting my ass kicked all over the universe. Putting yourself into a position to get your ass kicked, fighting, resisting, never giving up. 
How is there a way off this planet? Aren't you convinced Scorpius stop chasing me? The Empress is she no longer intent on her daughter being heir to the throne. Those are not good reasons for getting married. All right, no, bigger picture. Let's say that the idiot's son inherits the throne. He starts wars, he makes bad alliances, millions of people die. 80 cycles. It's not that long of time. Oh, so you've rationalized this all out, have you? Aaron, I'm tired. What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do when there's no fight left? You run away. With you? With all of us together. What? You can't just quit. I'm not quitting. I just can't go on. Was I wrong? You're no longer the Crichton I knew? There's a lot going on in this scene. A lot of heartbreak, number one. And I think that this also goes back to how John and Aaron deal with situations and that Aaron doesn't exist without fight. Let me put it that mm -hmm. way. When If Aaron's not fighting, she's dead kind of thing. So John's exhaustion doesn't make sense to her. Like, I don't think that I don't think it's just that she wants her cake or she wants to have her cake and eat it, too, in terms of she wants John on the ship, but she also doesn't want to be in a relationship with him. She just doesn't want to define that. I think it's I think it's just that she looks at him and she's like, what do you mean you're not going to fight or run? Like, that's those are your only two options. And John mm -hmm. is like, my other option is to give in. Yeah. And I've always liked that John's response here is just tired because it's it's always felt to me like have you ever had those nightmares where someone's trying to kill you and you're like running away and running away and running away and then you mentally it's like okay I can't take it anymore I'm just gonna let them catch me mm. that's that kind of nightmare is what this scene feels like or at least what John's response feels like in this scene where he's like okay I've I've just got to stop and i've got to change the rules of the game yeah and it's a terrible change of the rules because he's going to be a statue and he's going to be separated he's going to everything he knows is going to be dead by the time he gets out of it but it's still it's a way to ex exert control without actually having the power to have any control does that make sense mm -hmm. uh, yeah i i agree with you that i really enjoy his his exhaustion here because it kind of feels like, whereas in the last episode, it was he was like a cornered animal that mm -hmm. agreed to the marriage because it was that or being killed. Here, it just kind of feels like, it just feels like he's tired and he deserves a break. And I think yeah. as viewers, as viewers, if we'd kind of gone from part one and then just immediately jumped to part three without part two there still would have been that kind of element of like, what do you mean? You're just giving up. What do you mean? And here mm -hmm. it's, I don't know. It fundamentally makes sense to me. Like I feel tired listening to it. <laughs> yeah. And Aaron, I think you're spot on with Aaron because she doesn't understand that. And she doesn't have a framework for understanding that at all. 
And I think, you know, she says she's proud of him. And I think his fighting to escape from the cargo ship and all of that is something that she really admires about him. And it's one of the reasons she likes him a whole lot and is starting to fall in love with him potentially. Mm -hmm. And I think that's her way of expressing, see, see, you're this guy that I really like. And she's not quite there yet with getting it across, clearly. (laughs) And John kind of shuts her down immediately because he's like, there's no way out. But that's who he is to her and who he has become over the course of the first season and who she admires. That's what she likes about him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it makes sense, you know, from an Aaron point of view, because he's he's literally been fighting for his life since the first moment she knew him, since she attacked him. Yeah. He's been fighting for his life. And then now to see him kind of lay down and take it, it must kind of feel like, why is this what gets you versus when Crace was chasing you or versus when mm-hmm. Crace had you or versus when you were floating in space with Dargo or because there are so many other times that they've been under what must feel like to her much more pressure than they yeah. currently are. Yeah. And I was also just thinking a couple parallels with her, like, you know, Exodus from Genesis when she gets heat uh, delirium and in Nerve when she has this fatal stab wound that's slowly killing her. Like, Aaron is the one who kind of gives up, but John mm-hmm. never gives up on her. He always was willing to keep going and fight for her to keep her alive. And here's there's kind of that reversal where he's not willing to fight for himself, but she is willing. She wants him to, even though she doesn't know quite how to fight on his behalf yet. Mm. Because, like, he was fighting for her, but she doesn't know how to fight for him yet. That makes sense. Yeah. But then also, I think that in both of those cases, like I said, her response was then I will die. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like her response to heat delirium was like, you need to kill me. Like, I'm not just going to slip into a coma. You need to kill me. Right. And then even in nerve, it was like, okay, well I'm going to go off and commit suicide. Yeah. Yeah. She was still proactive about her own death. Yeah. She was still, you know, it was still her kind of saying, okay, if there's nothing to fight left and if there's nowhere to run left, then my choice is death. And Mm -hmm. I think that maybe that's what she doesn't get about John is that John's like not fighting, not running, just giving in. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to yeah. die over this. Yeah. And so, I don't know, it's a good it's a good place to kind of cuz it I feel like it does move their relationship forward a beat from the last episode. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think so. And so, so then John <laughs> becomes a statue. Well, he gets married first. <laughs> yeah, he, he and Katrala get married. And actually, they have a, like I said, I, I end up liking Katrala because yeah, they end up having true. a really good moment right after the ceremony where you can tell he's unhappy and she can tell he's unhappy. And she goes over to him and says something like, you know, kindling made from different from different woods makes the brightest fire or something like that, mm-hmm. you know. And it was kind of a sweet way of her saying, I get we're different. I get we don't know each other but we're going to have a strong empire. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a nice sentiment from her. Yeah. No, ultimately I do. I do like Katrala, despite my unhappiness with how she behaved earlier. She's in a tough position too, you know? Yeah. Got to feel bad for the girl. (laughs) Yeah. And so when John says right after the ceremony, they mean right after the ceremony, she gets turned into a statue first and has this really nice, lovely pose. And John, (laughs) John is still kind of in denial about this happening to him. Mm-hmm. And we haven't talked much about his relationship with Dargo this episode, but they've had a couple of really lovely moments where, where Dargo's like, 
earlier. He's like, you know what? I know this is awful. People have been trying to kill you. Whatever you want to do, I'm there for you. Mm -hmm. And now that they're at the wedding, Dargo is still there for John. And he has this really, really great way of cheering John up that I'm going to play. Just feel free to wake me up anytime, Dargo. Well, now I can only speak truth. And that comes as good and bad news. All right. Give me the bad news first. The bad news is that you're married. And you must endure as a statue for 80 cycles in a strange world. What's the good news? Jenna and I are having fantastic sex. And he gets John to laugh. And so John is laughing when he's finally turned into his statue. Which turns out to be an incredibly painful process for non-sebations. <laughs> and he has the worst expression. And he's in contorted pose. And it's just, oh, poor John. He looks ridiculous. Right? I can't imagine what the, everybody else would have thought if they'd been like, oh, okay, I guess this is a statue. <laughs> yeah. After they're used to generations of really beautiful statues. Yeah. Noble poses. Yeah. So Darga, Darga's a good bro. Darga's a good bro. <laughs> Darga's awesome. And... Yeah, I think that him and John this whole episode have just been getting closer and closer together. And I think that what's interesting for me about this episode is that it really cements that John and Dargo are best friends. Mm -hmm. But I think it also forwards Aaron and Chiana becoming friends in the same in like not the same way, but in in a very similar way. Because well, I I just think that there's not enough women friendships on tv do you know what i mean yeah like real genuine friendships so i want to play an earlier quote with chiana and aaron <laughs> where chiana is trying to get aaron to tell john how she feels and aaron is like i've already told him in like the only way i know how i don't know it's so chiana and aaron and i yes. like it have you even told him how you feel he knows what he needs to know Look, Aaron, all men are stupid, okay? Men, stupid. If you want them to know something, you gotta tell them. I trust I'm not disturbing you, but I'm planning a trip to the edge of the Barrenlands to watch the Polk Renos migrate and thought... No, you, thank you. I sense unhappiness that your friend Crichton is marrying our princess. Oh, yes, and why would that make me unhappy? I simply offer myself. As a diversion. <laughs> Besides, you never know. We could be extremely compatible. Now, don't feel bad. It's not you, it's me. I don't like you. certainly have made your feelings clear. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so Aaron gets to practice on Casanovia, the, the royal cousin or whoever who's crushing on her. Okay, this is a side note, but the one thing that kind of bothered me throughout the, all these episodes was whenever Aaron throws anything or one of the other characters throws anything, there's a whoopash sound. And I'm like, you're throwing something like that doesn't make a sound, guys. <laughs> <laughs> or at least not such a cartoonish one. Oh my gosh. That's the one thing that bothered me this, these episodes. Aaron's line of, it's not you, it's me, 
I just don't like you is is number one literally just the most classic Aaron line. Like I think there's not a lot of other Aaron lines that so succinctly sum up who her character is. And mm. number two, I don't know any woman that hasn't at one point or another just wanted to say that to somebody. Oh yeah, totally. Totally. I mean, isn't that the classic breakup line? It's it's not you, it's me. Yeah. With that implied. <laughs> no, it's like, when, well, that's the funny thing is usually like, it's not you, it's me. The implication is like, I'm not ready for a relationship or like, mm-hmm. I'm in a place in my life where I just don't have time to have be in a relationship or, you know, it's like the it's me part is like. Well, you're trying to spare their feelings. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's definitely a sparing the feelings kind of, of way of saying things, which is fine. I mean, you should be kind when you let people down if you can. But Aaron is but... never going to be that person. <laughs> I just love Chiana. Also, Chiana's line is like, men are stupid. Just accept it. And that's her. I love that Chiana's trying to be so helpful here to her. And it's mm-hmm. just like, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it works or not. I don't know how much of it's getting through or if Aaron's being difficult, but some of it's she's still listening to her. But I love that that Chiana because she did it last episode. She's and she just does it here. It's just like trying to explain the facts of life to Aaron and be like, okay, clearly you were never a teenage girl. Mm-hmm. Let me help you out there. Yeah, exactly. And like I said, it's just this building of a friendship between them, and it feels yeah. really comfortable and it feels really good to watch happen. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Yeah. So then there's another moment I want to play late from later in the episode and it's kind of referring back to Chiana because I feel like Chiana has strengths and then this is Chiana being weak and not in the sense of physically weak but just in she's doing something that's not within her skill set and it really comes across because I feel like we often Mm. see we often see these characters playing to their strengths and then when they're not playing to their strengths it's usually for comedy do you know what I mean like in the dream a little dream where Chiana and Rigel Mm -hmm. were like oh we've got to tell the truth and we've got to practice law and those are not things that we're really good at oh no what are we gonna do haha isn't this funny but this is a scene where it's like this is pretty serious (laughs) and it was and it's interesting to see somebody underestimating their skill set so badly Mm -hmm. so to set this up this is earlier on when John has now disappeared the Empress has got him onto the cargo ship without telling anybody, and the crew is looking for. Yeah. And the crew is looking for John. Am I interrupting? Yeah. <laughs> well, of course I am. Yeah. Yeah, it's so, so hard to conduct a conspiracy without privacy. Well, ask me. I should know. What do you want? <sighs> I'm an Abari. You may have heard of us. Leave this room now, child. Well, you also may have heard how uh, we can defeat Pokemon carriers. Not to mention uh, mind cleansing. We are both impressed and daunted. By all means, Nabari, continue. So, uh, if anything happens to John Crichton, expect. Uh, expect retribution. Yeah. Retribution. Yeah. Poor Chiana. That did not go well. And basically, she gave away to the Scarin who was there with Clavor in that conversation that they're looking for Crichton and don't know where he is. Yeah. It's so painful to Super watch. Super painful. 
Yeah. And it's and like I said, it's an interesting note for Chiana because she's usually a character that knows exactly how to get what she wants. Mm-hmm. And then here she's trying to play a different role and it does not fit and it goes really badly <laughs> for her. Yeah. What I think part of that comes from is she's playing in a different arena. Mm. Like the scale of the empire and politics and empires like the Scarin Empire and the Peacekeeper Empire they're all kind of converged on this one event of John marrying Catralla to keep this neutral territory neutral. And it is so far outside of her league because normally she's on the small scale. She's conning the police officer. She's getting information out of somebody low on the totem pole. Who's not very bright, who it doesn't think in three different ways to get around problems and, you know, manipulate armies and leaders and things. Mm-hmm. Because that's the thing. She's trying to invoke the Nabari Empire, right? Mm-hmm. And she ran away from them. She was their prisoner. She has absolutely no pull with them. It's this giant bluff that she's trying to pull, and it just fails miserably. And the Scarin definitely sees through it instantly. Clavor doesn't see through it because he is not as bright politically, which is why mm-hmm. he thinks that he can get away with fooling around with the Scarins. So even just that interaction, though, it really sets up episode three as kind of this really nice culmination of all of these different threads coming together. Mm-hmm. Yep. And there's one thread we haven't talked about yet, and that is Zan and Moya and Pilot, who have been called away last episode, and we only touched on it briefly, by this mysterious signal that was calling to Moya. And so that was part of the reason that once they starburst away from the peacekeepers, they've heard the signal, and that's part of the reason why they've stayed gone. And it turns out that it was Moya's gods, who are also called the Builders, who were calling Moya away. And in this episode, we finally meet one of the Builders, Keanu, mm-hmm. who is comes in and this is this like thread of smoke and then materializes and the actor is actually Jonathan Hardy who is the voice actor for Rigel so we actually get to see Rigel's voice actor in the flesh oh yeah you can kind of hear it a little bit in his voice if you know what to listen for but yeah so that's normally the guy who just does Rigel is now playing Moya's gods as well and this thread that happens with the meeting of Moya's gods quickly turns sinister so I'm going to play the first clip where Zan meets Kahenu Moya's gods Anybody can give a machine intelligence. We gave her this soul. Then I welcome you aboard. I have been through Moya's systems. She is in good health. And she has given birth to a male offspring named Talon. A gunship. Not. Of her choosing, while held captive against... Pilots do not speak to Kainu. A capricious deity. He created these beasts as emissaries of peace. Then you have succeeded, Kainu. Moya is a gentle soul. And is able to reproduce ships that can dispense carnage. I am here to decommission Moya. Ooh, so Moya gets called home and her god is not happy with her for having had Talon, even though it was against her will. 
And so that's the threat that we have to Moya that Zan must deal with alone. Mm -hmm. And that is this all-powerful being that was able to bring a Leviathan machine to life, the ship to life, give her a soul. I love that. That's just really beautiful in my mind. And he wants to kill her. Mm -hmm. And it's just uh, seeing Zan's response. And she's like, oh, hell no. And is like, no, you cannot do that. But she's powerless against it. Yeah. It's just kind of heartbreaking. And I, what I really love about the whole Builder's plotline is just the immediate acceptance on Zan's part that this is a god. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And Because I always get a little bit uncomfortable when science fiction shows are like, it's not really a god. It's actually a creature that is using Wizard of Oz magic to make himself seem mm -hmm. like a god. Like That's kind of one of my issues with Stargate is that I'm... You know, it's like, oh, they weren't really gods. They were actually aliens, you know? Yeah. So I think what I really like here is just Zan's immediate acceptance that she's like, oh, mm -hmm. okay, you're a god. And she even tells him later, like, she even calls him later, like, a capricious god. Yeah. There is this moment of any creature that is powerful enough to not only make Moya, but to endow them with life and with a soul. Why not? Let's call it a god. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's Clark's law, right? Anything sufficiently advanced is magic. And, I mean, that's one of the things about Farscape as a show overall that they do a lot. Like, there are lots of supernatural elements that are never explained technologically or with any science, you know, with any science logic or anything. And often the characters don't care. They're just like, skip that. We have a problem. We have to deal with it. And it saves a lot of time in the writing. It gives more time for the story from a writing perspective. And I also just like that style because it doesn't feel like we have to explain every single little detail. Mm -hmm. I mean, you and I have done it where we say, talk about somebody's magic powers because there was no explanation for it. And it was just, it's just easier to do that sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so Kahenu his whole plot is that he's going to decommission Moya and essentially he tells Moya decommission yourself and Moya begins systematically committing suicide. She mm -hmm. just systematically begins shutting down her own systems and Zan really struggles with this and mm -hmm. she's essentially walking around and just screaming at Kahenu and being like, you know, I, Moya can't want this. So Kahenu allows Zan to hear Moya and it's, Beautiful. And reproduce gunships. Moya must be decommissioned. She trusts my suggestion to guide her. You will never convince me that Moya is doing this willingly. Then let her do it. Moya. Fulfilled. With uncharitable rage. I just I just love that last line of, of Zan's where she's just filled with uncharitable rage. Mm. 
because we've talked about this with Zan a lot, where she has this persona of being the peaceful priest who's always going to be looking for the easy way out, but yet she has this truly violent core to her. And, you know, she's murdered people and she's embraced her darkness. And here it comes to the surface again because she, is, she feels that Moya should be allowed to live. Mm-hmm. That, you know, there's this rage in her. She has this primal scream afterwards that's just agonizing to listen to. Mm-hmm. I, I also really enjoyed the uncharitable rage quote because... I think that she's actually getting at something that Kahenu is kind of brushing over, which is Kahenu is saying, this is Moya's choice. She is doing it of her own free will. And I think Mm -hmm. that Zan is getting at this point of if your God and your creator asks you to do something, the power imbalance makes it so that even if you are doing it, it can never be of your own free will. Yeah. Yeah. And... I don't know. It's just, plus we finally get to hear Moya's voice. Mm-hmm. It's kind of ethereal, kind of floating through. And the camera work that they do with it is also like layered upon layered and fade-ins where you see Vizan's face and the hallways kind of on top of each other. It is kind of haunting and lovely at the same time. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, Moya is only essentially able to use a few words. And I think that gets back to the fact that Moya, Moya's communication is so different and that while she has consciousness mm-hmm. and intelligence, just the words that she can use to express that have to be so limited. Yeah. Yeah. And she actually comes, her, her ending is a very interesting idea of fulfilled. She's fulfilled. Yeah. She's lived a good life. And the, the other casualty of all this is Pilot. And we have a very sweet, heartbreaking scene where... They're in the dark because Moya has shut down systems and so there's very little light and Zan just has basically a flashlight. And she's she's got her face against Pilot's face. And they're just in the dark and he's dying because Moya's dying. And he also says he is fulfilled. He got the chance to see the stars. But it's so sad because he's going to be gone too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's terrifying a little bit for Zan and also for us as viewers because it is a little bit confusing you know Mm -hmm. because you are like okay so then how do they get back from this (laughs) yeah yeah I mean it is the second episode so you know it's got to be resolved but how is it going to get out how is it going to be resolved yeah so we end on a few cliffhangers this episode we end on will Moya survive we end Mm -hmm. on John as a statue Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what yeah. would you give this episode? I think this is a oh, the weaker one of the trilogy. So I'd give it more of along the lines of a three out of a half, four. Mm-hmm. Um, I still think it brings a lot of good character work to the to the table, though, especially with regard to John and Aaron and to Zan and Moya. Mm-hmm. So, well, everybody really. I mean, we have good good little nuggets from the others as well, like Rigel, Gianna, and Dargo. So yeah. Yeah, I'll I'll go with you. I was going to go for like a three and a half. Um, I don't think it's a bad episode by any stretch of the imagination. It's very good TV, but mm-hmm. it also treads water so much. And there was like mm-hmm. a lot of times when I was like, oh my gosh, is somebody going to try and kill John again? You know, like, <laughs> yes, um, yes, they are. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I just think that there's yeah. a lot going on this episode, but a lot of it wasn't super necessary. 
Yeah, but at the same time, I don't think it hurts it by being there. Like, sometimes you're just like, oh my gosh, when will this end? And this one wasn't that way. I still felt engaged for most of it. Like, there are some parts where I wasn't, but yeah. Yeah, well, I think that that's it exactly. And also, we talked about earlier how without this episode, John's choice would still feel a little hollow because it would still feel like he hadn't exhausted all of his options. Yeah, this one definitely gives, gives it depth, the whole arc some more depth to it mm-hmm. all right so in wardrobe watch john's in the local wear when he gets married uh everybody else is wearing i think the same thing oh mm-hmm. except at the end when they all put on wedding clothes yeah there's the wedding outfit which is pink oh and i completely forgot to mention one of my favorite rigel lines it was so short we didn't get it but at the very end after John's been turned into a statue and after he and Contrala had, or I mean, before John's been turned into a statue, he and Contrala have that moment and then John's turned into a statue and Rigel says, I can smell power again. <laughs> and you understand that Rigel has not been acting in John's best interest at all. He just sees well, he- John as a nice puppet for him to get some power. <laughs> puppet, huh? Yeah. Well, he's decided to stay and be John's counselor. On the royal planet, too. I mean, he's mm-hmm. John's his meal ticket to staying. Rigel, gotta love you, dude. Yep. So next week, we have part three, the Maltese Crichton. And it is the stunning conclusion to this epic fairy tale of political and love and gods and all sorts of all sorts of fun stuff in this this little trilogy. Yeah. If you want to get in touch with us and let us know how you felt about part two we are farscape friday podcast at gmail tumblr and Dreamwith. we are farscape friday at twitter we would love to hear from you and see what you th- are thinking about the first the second of farscape's real trilogies yep and if you subscribe to us um, please give us a rating on itunes that'll help other people find us and we will see you next time bye bye